the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome, listeners. Today, I have guests David Mandel and Adam Braunscheidel from the OJM Group, which is a financial consulting firm. They have over a 1,000 clients they provide financial advice to, and they have generously agreed to come on the show to discuss some financial topics with us. I'm hoping this will be the first of many. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Great to have you. Great to have you. I've been wanting to do a financial podcast forever. And just as a background, we are part of the Helio Network, and these gentlemen have posted many lessons and topics on there, and I'd welcome you to look at it, but I was able to reach out to them through that network and found out that they do a lot of work with physicians. So I thought maybe they could help us. So really glad to have you. And FYI for our listeners, I'm generating these questions from a book that they've published, uh, Wealth Management Made Simple, Seven Simple But Not Easy Lessons on Your Investments and Your Wealth. And there's a lot of good information in there. David, I I wanted to ask you, you're a co-author and principal of the OJM Group. How did you become interested in writing a book on wealth management? I've been writing books for 25 years. My background originally is as an attorney. So I wrote a book actually for physicians. And the reason we at OJM Focus the Physicians is all the partners kind of had that as a niche. It came from my area because my brother, father, grandfather were all physicians. I was not science inclined, so I did not follow that path, but I'm trying to help docs and people in the medical arena for all you know 25 years of my career. So I'm very accustomed to writing books. And as we launched after my law practice, OJM Group, 15 years ago, it was pretty obvious to us as we grew and folks like Adam were working with clients on a day-to-day basis on their financial issues, including investing, right? And I think that's a crucial point I want to make is wealth management, at least the term that way we use it, is all-encompassing. Investing is one piece of that, but so is tax reduction, so is insurances, so is financial and retirement modeling, so is if you're concerned about liability, as a lot of the surgeons may be, TAs may be less, but some concern, uh, asset protection, which is an area that I specialize in physicians. So bottom line is we have this wealth management firm, we're getting a lot of questions from our clients, and we wanted to write a book on wealth management. We've done other books that had a lot of other areas to them, but we wanted to focus one on the investing, mostly on the investing portion within wealth management, and that's where this book, the lessons that are simple but not always easy to follow, that's where we decided to make that as a separate title. Got it. So a multifaceted look at how to manage your wealth and how to stay on track when you look at many different things other than investing. I wanted to ask you just some questions kind of going through the book, just starting an introduction. You guys made a point out of fear of running out of money being one of the biggest stressors for your clients. And I'm sure that results in some interesting financial decisions. How do you overcome that fear as an investor? And then, you know, on the flip side of it, how do you overcome the fear of losing your money on investments? You know, if you're not in the game, you can't win at it. So how do you overcome those? I know there's some behavioral psychology that goes into this. Curious what your thoughts are. You know, it's a legitimate concern, the concern about running out of money, because, you know, if you look at our country, how it's changed over the last 50 years, if you went back 50 years ago, when my father started medical practice in the 
early uh, 70s, or as my grandfather practiced in most of the 20th century, there were a lot of pensions. There were a lot of sort of contractually guaranteed retirement income that a lot of workers in all areas of, of the economy would rely on. It was basically something that the employer provided, whether it be a hospital or health system, what have you. And so you could sort of count on that, quote unquote, in retirement, along with maybe some Social Security, and that would be what you would relied on. Okay, well, over the last 50 years, very few clients and a few, very few of your members probably are part of guaranteed you know, pensions. They're got 401ks or 403bs or other retirement vehicles where how much they have is going to be completely dependent on their performance and how much they put away. Now, the onus is on us as earners to create our own retirement. Yes, there's Social Security there, and we all will read about how you know how much time it's got left and whether they you know um, make improvements to it, et cetera. But that's only a piece of what retirement is. And for most people, they're going to have to have enough assets to sustain them in retirement. And the other part of that, by the way, is something that your members contribute to, which is a great thing, which people are living longer and healthier. The model that was in the 20th century, 1950s, you have a pension, you retire at 65 and you're dead by 70 and you needed five years of income, maybe your spouse another couple of years. That's not the case anymore, right? For those of us and you have probably a lot of people who are younger than me, I'm 54, you, you and a spouse may have life expectancy to 90 or longer. So if you retire at 65, now that's 25 years, right, that you have to be sustained by an assets. So I, I say all of those things is the concern about, am I going to have enough money in retirement is a legitimate one. And it's important. That's why the work that we do with clients, I think, is important. Now, how do you then as somebody who understands, okay, I need to save, I need to have financial goals, I need to have either do it myself or work with a professional. How do I avoid the fear of getting in the market? And I think that's really a fear of loss, right? Because obviously, if you knew you were going to make money every year, you wouldn't have any fear, right? So it's really a fear of risk, volatility, watching the market scene go up and down, especially as recording today, right? In early, in early March 2022, we've just had a couple of months of pretty significant downturns with everything that's going on in the world today. My advice would be, just like anything that might be a little scary, right, getting in the OR, you got to just do it. You got to put your toe in first. Doesn't mean you put everything in, but you got to start even with small amounts, even with what's called dollar cost averaging, where it's kind of automatic going in every week, every month, a couple of dollars, and then realize that you can ideally Enjoy as things go up, but not stress out too much as the numbers go down, especially if you have a long time horizon. And a lot of our clients have kind of been trained over time to realize that they don't have to worry so much about up and downs every day, every week, if they're thinking about down the road. And so I think both getting into the market, and that's a big term, the market, right? Stock market, be a lot of other assets, but getting into investing, and then being able to stay in investing while there are, and there will be downturns. That's part of investing, right? Markets, any investing, any asset doesn't go up constantly. Okay. But if you can do it 
and be disciplined about staying in and whether that you have to work to a professional who helps you with that. I think that's the key because once you see, we see this all the time, it may be difficult for someone in the early stage getting in, but once they have and they have experience and they haven't panicked and things have come back, let's just say March, 2020, we had a lot of nervous clients. Everybody was nervous. Every one of your members, am I going to be able to go to the, you know, the OR and do work, et cetera? Practices were closed. What's the market's falling significantly? But those who stayed in now, two years later, they're so happy they did. And that's a lesson they're going to learn and understand for the rest of their investing career. So long-winded lawyer answer. I think uh, the key is really dipping your toe in, staying disciplined, and staying focused on the long term. That'll help you get over any fear of getting in and fear as things go down. I totally get it. March 2020 was bad enough, but if you lived through 2008 and then back in the dot-com in 99 and 2000, you kind of know, you know what fear is when you see your, your investment shrink. So you do have to write it out. It comes back. So thank you for that answer. I've only read the first lesson in the book, but it's very important. And I didn't want to go further until we talked about it. It's basic terminology, basic financial terms that a lot of people know. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't. And I think it would be helpful to go through them. So jumping in, what is a stock and what is a bond? And if I have a stock, do I own a piece of the company? What about a bond? And when do I want one or the other? Do I want both? I'm hoping you might shed some light on that. This is Adam. I'll jump in and, and handle this one since I'm, my, my primary focus on the team here at OJAM Group is, is investments and investing. We'll start with stocks, or you may have heard of them commonly referred as equities. Both synonymous mean the same thing. When you own a stock, it's a type of security, you have actual ownership in a corporation or, or a company. And that can be U.S., that can be international, global, uh, all over the world. Now, I always say to clients of mine, you know, you, you own one share of Apple stock, you, you probably own, a, not probably, you, you own a very tiny percentage of the overall company, but you have ownership nonetheless, you're tied to the revenues and growth of, of that company. Typically, a stock is structured on, on the publicly traded side. They are listed on an exchange. And again, these can be in the US, in Europe, internationally, all over the world. And each company has a limited number of shares available for purchase. So there are some basic forces of supply and demand that are going to influence whether that company or stock is up or down on any given day. From my side of the equation, and you know, people go to, go to school for many, many, many years to, to learn sophisticated financial modeling tools to try to figure out the fair long-term valuation for a company. But at the end of the day, we've talked a little bit about it already, the behavioral factors or influences on the market are huge. And I think post-COVID, we, we all lived through this, especially the physicians on this call, really were on the front lines handling, handling the, uh, the pandemic. But it was clear, there was a clear example of how stocks can get ahead of themselves and can become speculative in the short term. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples. And really, it's been a, a challenge, I think, the last two years with certain companies that maybe got a little ahead of themselves from a price perspective. We're sitting here on, on, on a Zoom audio doing this recording, and that stock is, is down 70% from its all-time highs. You have a company like Peloton down 80% from its all-time highs. So the question always becomes is, is Peloton worth 160 or is it worth 25 to 30 where it sits at today? What's, what's right? What's wrong? There's, there's no 
there's really no answer because stocks at the end of the day are, are a weighing, a voting machine, a voting mechanism for us investors. So that's really the basic of a stock kind of generally. Typically stocks, there's a higher potential for return, but that also comes with increased risk. There's, there's no free lunch in investing. Typically, the more return potential investment has, the more risk there's going to be. Moving along kind of to the bond perspective, almost polar opposite here, a bond or what we also call a fixed income. I always give the example, it's, it's kind of back to the schoolyard days. It's, it's a glorified IOU. You lend somebody money for some period of time. They pay you a fixed or variable rate of interest over that period of time. And then eventually, when that maturity or date comes up, they pay you back what you originally lent them. Most people, if you're a homeowner, you basically have a bond, but you're on the debt side. As an investor, you're like the bank lending you money for a period of time to own that mortgage, pay you some rate, of, they get some rate of interest in return to offer that capital to you. Typically, the rate of interest, and there's, there's all sorts of bonds that can be, a company can issue a bond, you could have a municipality. So think about your local or state or even federal government. There, there, there's many options in terms of who structures these debts. But at a very high level, just like us individual investors or citizens here in the U.S. have individual credit scores, these companies or municipalities also have a credit score in essence. So if you have a lower credit quality company, they're going to typically have to pay higher rates of interest to issue that debt than, than, another, than a company in a similar industry that might be in a much better place financially, their balance sheet's much cleaner. For us, it's at a, at a high level, stocks more risky, higher rate of return, bonds typically lower rate of risk. You're gonna see less volatility. A lot of it depends on, on interest rates. You know, We're in a unique situation now in terms of interest rates have done nothing but come down for really 30 to 40 years since, since the 80s. You know, I always talk to a lot of clients and, hey, go ask your parents, or even if you own a, a house back in the 80s, you were probably paying double digit interest rates. But on the same, side of the equation, you're also earning double digits in your checking account. It all is connected, but typically bonds are there for to provide some income stream. And that income stream is going to vary depending on the underlying issue. So that's that's really the, the main the main two asset classes really I always say there's stocks, there's bonds, and then cash, cash is king. We all know about cash. We won't go we won't go into that, but that's really the differences between a stock and a bond. That's a great explanation. I really appreciate you pointing that out. I, I think our people will find a lot of value with that. You had talked about exchanges. I'm assuming you mean like the S&P and the Dow, the NASDAQ. Those are exchanges where these things are traded, correct? So actually, those are indexes or indices. Exchanges uh, would be like the New York Stock Exchange, right? You, uh, you see when you, when you turn on CNBC or one of the media channels and you see them ringing the bell, those would be the, you know, kind of the exchanges where these stocks are traded. Now, historically, right, you see all the folks huddled around in, in those trading floors that used to be more manual and paper and over on the phone. With the evolution of technology, that's not the case. And things have really advanced. There's really not many people left on the actual physical trading floors. And because technology's evolved, we, we have so many options now to really see things in real time all day, every day. The S&P, or a lot of people are familiar with the Dow Jones, those are actually indexes or indices that, that track a basket of stocks or companies. Got it. 
Adam, what about mutual funds and ETFs or exchange traded funds? I, I know that you know there are different stock and bond funds, but what are those and and how do they work themselves into our investment portfolios? You're absolutely right, Sam. There can be stock mutual funds, bond mutual funds, stock what's called exchange traded funds, or we we shorten it, them and call them ETFs or or bond ETFs. At a very high level, it it really goes back to the tax code and the different structures. They're just two different structures. You could have a mutual fund and an ETF that have the same strategy. Let's just say, again, most people are familiar with the S&P 500 that track that specific index. So on the mutual fund side, these are maybe more traditional people from, they're, they're much older. They were created decades and decades and decades ago. Typically, it's a company that pools money from a group of investors and they invest in, again, securities like stocks, bonds, combinations of the two. Most people are familiar with open-ended mutual funds. They don't have a limit as to how many shares they can issue. When an investor purchases shares, shares are created. Somebody sells his or her shares, those shares are taken out of circulation. There's also closed-end funds. I won't, I won't go too much into those, but there's basically a, a limited number of shares, so they don't trade exactly the same as, as an open-ended mutual fund. Mutual funds are not traded throughout the day. An ETF, we'll get into that in a second, is traded throughout the day, just like a stock is traded throughout the day. They strike what's called a net asset value or the actual price of all the underlying fund or stocks, companies, bonds that, that roll up into that fund. So it really just trades at the end of the day. Okay, after really after four o'clock Eastern when, when the stock market closes. There are some, some different nuances in terms of how they're taxed, capital gains treatments. There's some tax inefficiencies with mutual funds. And really a large reason why ETFs, kind of switching gears to ETFs, why they've come to kind of come into the, the foray here is because of the tax inefficiencies of mutual funds. A lot of times when a mutual fund has to, you know, when they're buying or selling a position, they have to distribute that income or capital gains onto investors. ETFs don't operate the same way. An ETF really, again, it's just an exchange traded fund. It's a marketable security that tracks an index, can track a commodities, it can track a sector index, bonds, a basket of assets like an index fund. Most people are probably familiar with stock ETFs. Again, you could go buy a a Vanguard, a Schwab, a Fidelity. There's hundreds of providers out there that have S&P funds. And much of these are much lower cost than mutual funds because they're a little less complex maybe. And fees have really come down with the technology evolution here. The big, the big difference again is an ETF is traded throughout the day. So let's just say you have an S&P 500 ETF and that's traded every day, all day when the markets are open. There actually can be we know the value of that underlying ETF based on all the holdings that it has and the percentage weighting it has in those, those positions. However, we talked a lot about behavioral finance and investors are emotional creatures. There can be times when that ETF is worth more or worth less than the underlying positions. It's called you know, a premium or a discount at any given time. So there's little nuances in terms of taxes, how they're traded. There's pros and cons to each that we won't really dive too, too much into today, but that's the main kind of structural differences between mutual funds and ETFs. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on today. I could talk for hours. Also, David and Adam in OJM Group are offering a free copy of their book, 
the wealth management book I discussed earlier, and we'll provide information for you on how to get that at the end of the podcast. So David and Adam, any last thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think getting the book it would be a great uh, next step because it does kind of start with the basics, as we talked about today, into how to find a financial advisor. If you want one, what are the mod business models out there? I think a big problem that people, you know, prevents them from moving forward is they don't know who to trust in terms of uh, if they're going to work with a professional advisor. And we try to you know, pull back the curtain and explain what the business model is in, what a fiduciary standard is, what a suitability standard is. And so I'd really encourage people to get the book because they can learn on their own and hopefully it can help them move forward for their own benefit. Great. Well, thank you both for being on today. I really appreciate your time and expertise. The options for getting your copy of the book, you can visit the OJM Bookstore. It's ojmbookstore.com and enter the promo code PAOS. That's all caps at checkout. Now, this is for PAOS members. You could also text PAOS to 844-418-1212. And that's for a free copy of the Wealth Management book produced by OJM Group. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on today. I hope we can do more of these down the road. Sounds great. Thanks for having us. And we'd be happy to get back on. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance and Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.